Welcome to Digisection, a podcast about building great digital health companies and the strategies behind them. My name's Oscar. I'm a physician, inventor, and entrepreneur, and I'll be your host. The following is a conversation with Peter Ozechowski, the founder and CEO of Informatica. Peter's team creates AI-powered healthcare solutions that help doctors deliver efficient, safe, and reliable care to their patients. Informatica performed over 7 million health checkups, supports 18 languages, and the diagnostic engine reached 93% accuracy rate. I've known Peter for a long time, and I've always admired his persistence, resilience, and talent. Today I have the pleasure to host one of my favorite founders, my friend Peter. Hi Peter, great to have you. Hi Oscar, thanks for having me. Where does this podcast find you? Well, I'm actually in my house, so my typical <laughs> workplace for the past, I don't know, 18 months or so. Yeah, I know, that's been the reality for most of us. By the way, I've recently heard that Wroclaw, so the home of Informatica, is becoming one of the fastest growing tech spots in the C region. Hmm, interesting. I mean... I believe this news because we have at least a few very solid uh, technical universities here. So many engineers finishing each year, graduating. Happy to super bullish about Wrocław in this area. If you've never been here, you're looking for talented people, make sure to visit us. A lot of talent. That's right. I'd love to start our conversation with the story behind founding Informatica. And so tell us more about how it all started. Of course. Um, Informatica started mm -hmm. back in 2012. Maybe a few words about my background sure. before I get into Informatica. Uh, I started as a mobile game developer. I was <laughs> always into games. I wanted to build games. I wanted to design games since I was a small kid. I was doing board games. Then I was doing some simple games in basic because my father told me how to do some, you know, in uh, basic programming. Uh, so I went to a technical university here, and at that time I was already into this game development world. And actually, in 2012, I came across an online game, which was an mm -hmm. online version of 20 Questions. So you know the game where you think about maybe some famous character. And there is a, goal, mm -hmm. uh, there is a game called Akinator, which asks you questions about somebody you might be thinking of. Uh, so I was playing this game with one of my friends, who happens to be a medical doctor. And we were talking, chatting about it. We were really impressed because this game was very accurate. It kept improving over time with every session played by the user. And we figured that maybe we can apply a similar concept to something mm -hmm. useful for patients. And as you know, uh, being a medical doctor, many times patients just begin their research online. They sure. use so-called Dr. Google, they <laughs> enter their symptoms, they end up in different forums, Wikipedias, and so on. So we thought, hey, can we apply the concept of constantly improving game, such as 20 questions, to help patients learn more about the underlying causes of their symptoms? So the idea for what has become Informatica sparked as a game in 2012. We started working on a prototype, which actually started as a B2C play. 
oh, that's interesting. And then you convert it into B2B. We're going to have a deep dive into that. And one of the hardest tasks for you know us as founders is always finding the right product market fit and then closing the first customers. So could you talk to us about how did you navigate through the product market fit validation process? And then how did you close your very first customer? Okay, so it was a very long story and a pretty tough one, as you can imagine. So initially, when we started as a B2C app, I think we didn't really have a real business model behind it. We were just hoping that, okay, this will launch, we'll have many users, we can monetize the traffic. But none of this happened in 2012, at least. So for the first couple of years, we were actually trying different you know, approaches to how to monetize what we've built. So trial and error, <laughs> more error than success, I would say. However, once upon a time during one of my visits mm-hmm. to Bay Area, I met with some great founders of other healthcare companies and they asked me this question. Hey, Peter, you've built some interesting piece of technology. We don't think B2C is the way to go, but actually maybe we can use what you've built inside of our apps or services. So do you have any API we could potentially use so we can you know, mm-hmm. enrich, empower our products? So we said, oh, sure, of course. Yeah, at that time, we did not have API, but uh, <laughs> if somebody was willing to work with us, we would basically do everything you mm-hmm. can imagine. So they want to give us money for the API. So for sure, let's build the API. So actually the first, uh, the first paying client came in, I think three or four years in. So took us a lot of time. In the meantime, obviously we've been like, we were working on the product, on the engine, medical knowledge base, but three years in, we had a first paying client and that sparked this idea that, okay, maybe B2B Mm -hmm. is the way to go. And shortly afterwards, we were approached by a large medical device company from Germany, which is still undisclosed. And they offered us uh, about half a million dollars to you to license our technology. So we were like shocked. But definitely that was a pivoting point for all of us. We decided to fully focus on B2B. And that, from that point, that was the direction for the company. That was definitely a really huge contract for you know, a young company just starting. Let's have a deep dive then into enterprise healthcare market. Selling to health systems is pretty hard and also insurers. How long are your sales cycles right now? About nine to 12 months, really Mm -hmm. a lot of time. And of course, it applies both Mm -hmm. to US and Europe. I would say US slightly shorter. Okay. uh, Due to several reasons, probably more experience working with startups. Mm -hmm. But we also have deals that we've been working on for two years or so. So it depends. Okay. And how to network with health systems and how to gain their trust? That's a great question, Oscar. I think you gain trust if you have something valuable to share. How can you share these days? Obviously, we're now living in this fully remote Mm -hmm. setup, which creates some opportunities like, you know, participating in online events, creating webinars, reaching out to people, creating some good digital content like studies. So some unique research that you can share that proves valuable is how at least we try to get in touch with some stakeholders. Previously, of course, there was a range of events from local meetups to maybe some, uh, you know, country level conferences and huge conferences like HIMSS, like Health 2.0. Obviously, now we still need to wait for them to come back. Yeah, looking forward to it as well. Yeah. And what were the biggest problems in like, you know, B2B sales that you had to overcome to scale? I would say 
earning this initial logo, your very first client was the biggest challenge we had. Because if you have already someone you're working with, and especially if you have a big brand that supports you, everything gets easier. So just to give you a little bit of our story, at the beginning, we didn't have any client. So we had like one undisclosed German company, somebody from US, but nobody who would be like widely well-known, right? But fortunately, we were very lucky to have Allianz, one of the world's largest insurance companies, as our pilot customer. So, you know, we did not optimize for, you know, the size of a deal. We did not optimize for anything good for Informatica other than publicity and making sure that this first insurance client is very, very happy about what we do. And the pilot was successful. And after we had Allianz, which, you know, is a world's famous brand, guess what? Everything started to be much easier. Suddenly having a strong reference from Allianz allowed us to close like five or Mm -hmm. six contracts just a few months afterwards. So I would say earning this first well-known, credible brand is the biggest challenge. So you should never optimize for, let's say, size of a deal, revenue, Just do whatever Mm -hmm. you can to work with this person. Okay. So not volume, but quality of the organization you're working with. And could you disclose your current metrics behind sales and how is that, you know, growing? Sure. So in terms of growth, past year, we had about 260% Mm -hmm. growth in our contracted revenue. This year, we're aiming for about 200%. Okay. Uh, The sales team size is about eight people. We are divided between Europe and US. Currently, we serve about 80 B2B clients. Okay. And once talking about the division between the European and US market, could you talk to us about the main differences that you observe between US and EU healthcare market and, you know, the model in which it's easiest to implement your solution? I would say Europe is, both are very interesting, both Europe and US, but we have to say it up front that Europe is very fragmented. Unlike US, you have just so many languages, you have some local policies that you have to follow. You have also more diversity in terms of culture, right? So if you're talking to a German company versus Portuguese or Spanish, you can expect different mindsets (laughs) and different approaches to doing business. And that makes it much more difficult. However, there is also a good side of it because European Union as whole is a large market and a wealthy one. And uh, in terms of medical device regulation, all countries more or less follow mm-hmm. the same framework, which is being developed by the, on the European Union level. So once you comply with the medical device regulation, you pretty much uh, can be confident that you will succeed in rolling out in every single country. But of course, I think strategy for European Union also requires you to think about those markets separately, not as a European Union, but rather Germany, France, you know, Poland, Czech Republic. And given those language differences and cultural differences, you may need to think about hiring local business representatives. And I think in the U.S., of course, I know much more about Europe versus U.S. Obviously, in the U.S., you also want to have your local team over there, probably somebody covering East Coast, West Coast, Central part, and so on. Uh, But at least you have this advantage of having one culture and one language and one regulation. 
pretty much. In terms of willingness to work with younger companies, I think it's also easier in the U.S., as we all know, this is the place for the innovation and one of the most advanced markets in healthcare, especially when it comes to EHR, uh, adoption, telemedicine, and so on. In Europe, it depends. You might look mm-hmm. at Germany, which is super advanced. They even have um, programs for medical device yeah, reimbursement. Yeah, the, I think mm-hmm. one of the only policies, exactly, as something ex- uh, unique in terms of uh, any country. But still, Europe, we see uh, smaller price mm-hmm. points. So if you take the same kind of size of a client, same product, it's easier to price higher in US versus maybe, of course, Poland. In general, all countries mm-hmm. in Europe. So this is just uh, out of the top of my head, but there are more differences. I think still it's easier than you think. If you're successful in US, you shouldn't hesitate to explore Europe and vice versa. If you're successful in some European markets, I think you should be able to build a strong team in US and start exploring there. Okay, sure. And so around 80% of our listeners of the uh, DigiSection podcast are US-based Series uh, Seed or Series A founders. Say there's someone mm. planning to expand to Europe is that the right moment or would you wait till Series C, D or you know, even becoming a bigger company? That's a great question. If this is Series C or Series A, I think I would wait until Series B. Uh, why? So first of all, if you're starting from US, it's mm-hmm. already great because then you can come to Europe with a very good brand, you know, US innovation. It's still something that people in Europe have in their head, like Silicon Valley, American quality, (laughs) you know, it's very deeply rooted. So you are already in a good position. That's what I would say. What's important, in my opinion, for companies starting in US, obviously, is to secure this initial revenue point and collect as much evidence as you can. In U.S., you've got also some of the world's best scientific institutions. If you can make a peer-reviewed study together with Stanford, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, that means gold in Europe. Like, that's your ticket to the victory, you know? You want, most likely, you won't need a similar comparable evidence to repeat if you want to enter France or Poland. If they see, like, Mayo Clinic, Stanford, Things get okay, easier. they okay. know you are legit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, however, there is also this um, strategic decision you have to make. U.S. is huge market, obviously, on its own. So you don't have to divide your focus between U.S. and Europe to build a unicorn or multiple unicorn, whatever you want to build. Still, I believe that there are some great companies in the U.S. that decided to stick in only in U.S. a little bit too long, you know, a little bit too long. And maybe if they started uh, looking at Europe earlier, they would already be super established in both key markets. But uh, obviously, it requires more capital because if you want to address Europe, you have to spend additionally on your European team, uh, legal compliance, medical device regulation, GDPR, MDR. So European Union equivalents of like, let's say, HIPAA and FDA. 
you made the trip like from Europe to US and expanded your company uh, over the pond. When was kind of the perfect time and timing for Informatica to make this move? And was it the right, uh, the right timing? I think maybe we were a little bit too late. And if we could, we would have expanded earlier. Okay. Uh, why uh, we didn't do it earlier? I mean, of course, we tried to do it. We moved, we flipped the company. We had a small team uh, in the U.S. already. But uh, U.S. is expensive. Mm -hmm. So until you secured enough funding, you cannot do it seriously. So for real, we started, let's say, our activity beginning of the last mm -hmm. year. But right now is where is when we are building or scaling up our team really fast. So only after closing Series A. <laughs> okay. By the way, congrats on raising this round. Let's now analyze things from the patient's perspective. What is your main value proposition for the patient? Sure. So it's pretty simple. All of us are patients. Once in a while we have some symptoms, but we don't always know what to do to treat mm -hmm. them, right? So what Informatica provides is a tool to support you in making decisions about your symptoms. If you have headache, you can use our app. We'll ask you questions. We'll triage your problems and we'll advise where to go and what to do next. So maybe for some problems, we'll say, okay, Oscar, this is uh, just a minor headache. Here are your self-care instructions. If the headache gets worse, of course, get in touch with a physician, but you don't have to worry. And what we also provide here is not only for you as an like, adult user, but also for kids and newborns and infants. So if you're a worried parent, you can use this tool to safely, accurately check and triage your baby. Maybe in some cases we'll detect something really worrisome. So in some cases, we might alert you to see doctors sooner than you would like to. Looking at our statistics, about 15% uh, of people mm -hmm. using our apps qualify for uh, self-care. Okay. So the majority, obviously, we send to a physician more in urgent mode or less urgent. It, we can also differentiate between how urgent your consultation should be and whether that should be teleconsultation or chat or maybe in-person visit. And in some cases, we also detect situations where patients might be having emergency. So maybe if you're thinking about elderly patient with sudden chest pain radiating to your arm, we will make a suitable alert. <laughs> And what has been the most loved feature by patients so far? What would be like the killer feature number one? Well, obviously the killer feature in an app like this is the ranking or a list of most likely causes of your mm -hmm. symptoms. So after you finish the checkup, we will advise you where to go, but we will also say what are the most probable conditions you might have. Obviously, we don't replace a physician. You have to accept the terms of service. There is a disclaimer saying that this is not to replace a qualified mm -hmm. medical opinion, but we tell you, okay, given your symptoms, patients with your symptoms most likely suffer from maybe tension type headaches, maybe cluster headaches, maybe something else. So going back to the story of 20 questions, this is what patients really want to know, whether this is brain tumor or not, <laughs> right? So, uh, and then given each of those uh, conditions, you might read more about them. To date, we've had more than 8 million checkups performed with patients. And uh, what we have uh, is one of the most popular symptom checking apps you can find on App Store or Google Play. Mm -hmm. 
And have you tested any other interfaces than chatbots and texting and mobile apps? Yes, of course. So we tested voice and I think voice is the future. I know uh, <laughs> you are very interested in voice interfaces. And I have to say, we were not very successful. I think this is still a very challenging area. Why? If you start saying that, okay, you can talk to this device, let's say, let's take mm -hmm. Alexa app or something like this, or Google Assistant skill. If you claim that, okay, now you can talk to this symptom checker and learn about your symptoms, you know, the expectation for me as a patient is that I can have a conversation as if I had a call with my doctor or a nurse. But in reality, the technology these days is still pretty far away from this level of language understanding and capturing the jargon, all the nuances, even though, of course, we have the our own NLP engine. It was not flexible enough mm -hmm. and could not capture all of the you know, unique intents that patients have to make it like a human-like experience. So if you suddenly launch, let's say, our voice application, and then you have a series of yes, no questions, it's not the real flow. You want to talk, you know, as if you were talking with a real human, and we didn't get that far yet. I believe this is the future. We would love to show how certain elements, for example, of call center operations could be automated, but it's further ahead on our roadmap. Given some initial tests we had, it turned out that actually the accuracy of a solution and user satisfaction was better if you just use the traditional form-based interface. Mm -hmm. So clicking, scrolling, <laughs> buttons, traditional stuff. But Oscar, I still believe that there is a future ahead of us when it comes to voice, but we are not there yet. Okay. And you're right that, you know, efficient patient flow can also help the provider uh, kind of both to increase revenues and also boost patient satisfaction. Do you also plan to develop any tools for providers and the provider side of the organization? Yes, of course. So we're actually about to launch our first tool mm -hmm. for providers. It's called Intake Collection Tool. What's the difference between the triage symptom checker and this one is that the purpose of use is slightly different. So this is a tool where patient fills out pre-visit information ahead of the visit. So of course you can enter information about your profile, medications, any you know, recent surgeries, procedures and so on, or allergies. But the core piece is obviously telling Dr. Moore about the reason for your visit. So if I have knee pain, we will ask you questions about your pain, duration. So essentially, we want to collect a nicely structured summary, which we can provide to a physician. So ideally, uh, or eventually, what we want to do is to able to pre-populate the electronic health record so that doctors can spend less time typing their notes. In the first version, however, there will be a standalone doctor interface, so you can log in. You can look at the pre-assessment collected by our AI tool. You can have an automatically generated visit note, which you can copy and paste. No link with the <laughs> HR yet, but we are getting there. Uh, but aside from this automated note, you'll also get some recommendations on the clinical side. So for example, hey, this combination of symptoms is pretty concerning maybe you can double check this. Or here is the most likely ranking of differential diagnosis according to our algorithm. And obviously it's not to you know, interfere in this process of medical diagnosis uh, by a human expert, 
but it's a set of gentle hints. You can use them if you like, mm -hmm. but of course you don't have to. The main purpose is to help you learn more about the patient and to automate the visit note. So you can copy and paste it back to the EHR. Okay, so it's a nice help in, in daily practice for medical professionals. On a different note, Informatica has become a highly specialized company in AI development. But when was the moment you started building real AI? Like, you know, solving the problem of the volume of data, having the right people, the right budget, etc. I would say from the day one. Essentially, when we started, uh, the foundations for our technology came from the University of Pittsburgh, where I also met one of my co-founders, Adam. He used to work on probabilistic modeling of other diagnostic systems specialized in hardware mm -hmm. and military equipment. Oh. So, for example, designing, let's say, diagnostic tools for Boeing aircraft <laughs> so you can diagnose planes. So I would say this uh, AI scientific component was here mm -hmm. from day one. Day one, of obviously, we didn't have that size of the team that we have today and that much talent. But the scientific foundations were there already. So today we've got about 160 people. When we started, we just had three. So a very small team. But technology was always our starting point. So we adapted this know-how of hardware diagnostics into human biology. We had to make it much more scalable and faster to perform computations. And uh, I believe that without this foundation, we would never build a strong product because, you know, user interface, you can always improve, you can always build new, you can outsource, but uh, you need to have something, I would say, with unique foundations to differentiate in the market. Okay. And uh, did you have any secret sauce for forming and then scaling the team for AI development? Well... We found great people here mm -hmm. in Poland. Whether this is a secret sauce, probably not, because I already told you that we have great talented people, especially mm -hmm. in mathematics. So if you're looking for great data scientists, I think Poland is a very good place to go. And since the foundations of what we have is deeply rooted in statistics, because we're building probabilistic models, I think that helped mm -hmm. us a lot. And this is one thing. The second thing is about our, uh, let's say, learning strategy. So the way Informatica builds the model is we draw data from three sources. First of all, we hire doctors who use literature. So we have a team of over 35 doctors right now. And they use quality, trusted, evidence-based literature to build the model. To date, it's almost 50,000 hours of physicians' work building and curating it. So I'm not sure if that's a secret sauce, but you just it's a sort of a moat because it takes time to recreate this effort. And this is the source number one. Secondly, to some extent, we also use data sets, which we acquired from our clients. And this is more of a secret sauce. So for instance, when we initially, when we worked on certain licensing deals, we tried to barter a little bit. We said, okay, maybe we can give you a discount if you can provide us with structured data so we can improve mm -hmm. the algorithms. So for instance, we acquired a data set of uh, 10 years of call center triage operations to refine our algorithms. And the third piece of how we're learning is that we're learning from the history of conversations with our users. So um, with over 8 million of completed sessions, so it's uh, of like real users with real problems, you can already 
draw some conclusions. You can create some correlations. You can refine your question selection algorithms because you know what people typically answer. So if you combine those three things together, expert knowledge elicitation based on literature and data sets and your usage data, I would say this is our secret sauce. Mm-hmm. And how many data points do your system need to collect in order to suggest a diagnosis to a user? Yes, uh, between 20 to 30. Mm-hmm. And those data points include uh, things such as age, gender, risk factors, whether you maybe somebody's pregnant, whether you're on some medications. So this is the initial piece. Then we want to know your chief complaints. So maybe you're reporting just one, or maybe you have three. Maybe somebody's you know complaining of... Uh, stiff neck, headache, dizziness, and so on. And based on that information, we will use our algorithm to ask you follow-up questions. We ask between 10 to 15 questions Mm -hmm. on average. So if you combine it together, the total number of, uh, let's say, evidence that we need is about 20 to 30. Okay. And what are your plans for AI development in 2021? I know it's like we're close to middle of the year, but what would you like to accomplish till the end of 2021? So first of all, one of our key priorities is mm-hmm. pediatrics. I've already mentioned a little bit, but we are now about to launch our pediatric content. It was a huge effort. I think it took us almost two years to build a new knowledge base for babies, for newborns, for kids. And that's something we're extremely proud of. So this is priority number one. Priority number two is about improving this clinical decision support piece on the doctor's side. So this is closely related to what I already described, which is intake collection project. So we want to make this tool super useful to a physician. And uh, lastly, there is a range of things we're working on when it comes to clinical validation. So we're refining the way we test, we validate, mm-hmm. uh, we revalidate our technology And I think this is a super important thing that initially, when you just start your company, might go unnoticed, (laughs) but then you realize this is your oxygen. And it's a roadmap also for AI teams to know whether the new algorithms that they build are good or not. So those three things, pediatrics, clinical decision support, and new validation techniques are some of our key priorities for this year. Great plan. Let's wrap up with a quick fundraising guide for all of our listeners who are raising seed rounds this year. I'd love to talk about your process and how it changed from the moment you were raising seed to Series A. Sure. So I would say raising seed was more difficult than raising Series A. So just to give you some color, uh, mm-hmm. to date we've raised uh, about $15 million. Seed round was uh, 3.6 and then A round was slightly mm-hmm. over 10. And previously we also had some small checks. So Series Seed was 2019, uh, Series A 2020. Similar to finding your first client, as I mentioned before. Uh, it might be really difficult and be prepared. This is a typical sales process. You will hear no probably 90 out of 100 times. So mm-hmm. 90% <laughs> you will just hear no or no, Peter, this is great what you're working on, but it's too early. No, that's what you typically hear. But once you had this initial offer in hand, once you have your first terms, everything starts uh, to become much easier, just like with lending your first client. I know it's cliche, I know it's obvious, 
But whatever you can do to secure your first proposal creates this sense of urgency in people you're talking to. It creates a proof of validation. Hey, somebody wants to invest with you. I don't want to be the first, but there's somebody else. There must be something interesting. That's just like how psychology works. So 2019 seed round was more difficult because we didn't have that first term sheet in hand. However, we managed to convince some of the great funds. So we had uh, some, you know, great Polish fund, Innova, great Estonian fund, Karma Ventures, and some other investors as well. So we were very lucky. And Series A, once you have some great investors on board, they help you attract more great investors. And Series A was also much faster. So even though we were raising more money, it was easier. Mm -hmm. Okay. So kind of my thoughts after what you said are number one, create FOMO. Number two, in order to achieve the so-called snowball effect, close the first great investor. <laughs> yeah. So if I can, you know, maybe provide three mm -hmm. practical hints from my experience. So first of all, when you begin fundraising, always start with internal fundraising. So if you have some existing shareholders, existing investors on your cap table, talk to them first and make sure they want to commit. Because if you're raising 10, uh, maybe you already have three or four at hand from the existing shareholders. So you go to the market and say, hey, we are, you know, 30, 40 percent uh, complete. We're just looking for the remaining mm -hmm. six million. So pre-fundraise with your existing shareholders, if you have some. Secondly, once you begin this fundraising journey, never start with the funds you value most. Because guess what? The first 30 iterations of your pitch might not be as good as you want. You will learn after every meeting, after every call, that, hey, you could have improved somewhere here, somewhere there. So I think it took us, like, say, 20 different mm -hmm. iterations of our Series A pitch before it was good enough, before we had answers to all tricky questions we were asked. So if you want to uh, do it right, I would say don't start with the funds you value most. I, I maybe look for some funds you don't mind, but mm -hmm. are not top of your list. I know it might sound harsh, but you mm -hmm. practice a little bit. And once you nail, once you see that your pitch is getting better, then you go back to the funds you value most. Uh, what you said, Oscar, creating the FOMO effect and having some offers in place brings you a lot of confidence because you know mm -hmm. you will not die, at least. You will not vanish. <laughs> you have something at hand. So that gives you a lot of comfort. And definitely uh, a side note, you don't want to fundraise when you have two months of runway. Really, you want to raise with, let's say, nine to 12 months mm -hmm. plus. That gives both sides enough of comfort. And lastly, definitely look for investors who share similar values. You know, I think people don't think about it enough, but you just feel it. And you should know who will be your board member, who exactly you'll be working with, mm -hmm. and see if your sets of values align. Because if your, let's say, key value is transparency, and for this other person is, I don't know, execution, there is a risk that you won't like working with each other. So uh, if you have some set of you know, values for your company already defined, you can see if the fund shares similar values and similar mindset. That helps along the way. 
we were lucky to find investors that were, you know, super founder friendly with a very positive mindset and there was a good fit for our values. But during the conversations, we met some funds that we knew wouldn't work in the long run. Mm -hmm. And would you say there's a sweet spot for metrics to even start thinking about Series A or it just differs so much that there's no kind of window for that? Well, I'm not an expert here, and I think it super depends. I believe one of the best resources for SaaS kind of companies is obviously SaaS Napkin <laughs> by sure. uh, by Point Nine Capital uh, and Christophe I think you can raise uh, Series A pre-revenue. You know, you can raise Series B with just a few million in revenue, but also you might have hard time raising Series A if you have. Uh, you know, 5 million in revenue. It all depends on kind of size of the market mm -hmm. dynamics. Maybe one last thing in this area, I think is, I forgot about it, but it's actually the most important thing that I will say. If you want to raise, if you want to go out and be successful, in my opinion, there's just one most important thing. Something must be exciting and must grow. You must have one, at least one, story point in how you're fundraising. And something must be growing quickly. Whether this is your revenue, number of users, size of data, I don't know. Uh, something which will make is ideally numerical and will make investors excited. Because if you don't have this hook, if you don't have this growing number which shows your great traction, not always revenue, maybe user base, maybe, I don't know, uh, something else. If you don't have it, it will be very hard to raise. But if you can create this excitement and say, this is our North Star, mm -hmm. this is our key KPI, and see every month we are attracting this amount of doctors mm -hmm. and it's doubling every month, this will create this uh, atmosphere that you really want to have when pitching your investors. So a hockey stick graph for a given metric. <laughs> yes, not necessarily revenue, but mm -hmm. some metric for sure. Okay. And... What Informatica will become in the next 10, 20, 30 years from now? I know you're having this long-term vision and it's expanding. Absolutely. I think uh, in every company, the vision should be expanding somehow. But uh, so historically speaking, we started uh, with tools for mm -hmm. patients. Now, on top of it, we're building tools for physicians. And this is the second chapter that we're right now in and will continue to stay here for a couple of years. But eventually, what we all believe is that in five to 10 years from now, there will be more and more bots connected to your medical devices, connected to your EHRs and so on. And I'm very, very confident that there will be a bot that given your medical profile, your vital signs, whatever we can read from your watch, from your EHR, will be able to treat some very basic diseases, maybe common cold, maybe migraine, mm -hmm. right? And since we will be seeing a growing shortage of physicians, very basic diseases will need to be automated. So I hope that in, let's say, 10 years from now, we can talk about a virtual GP that will take care of very basic diseases, maybe in this common cold, but will treat it from diagnosis and FDA-approved diagnosis till prescription. So doctors can spend time with more complex patients, with more complex issues, uh, just as we will have self-driving cars, we'll have self-diagnosis bots 
but it's nothing in the near term, I would say five to 10 years from now. Okay. And my last question is connected with tennis. I know that you're a great tennis player. We still have to play our game and you're also a huge tennis fan. We'll be having the kind of tennis feast starting after the weekend, Roland Garros. Do you have any kind of types who will win? <laughs> Thanks, Oscar. So I want to clarify, I'm miserable in tennis. I can't play at all. I tried to learn, but it's a very difficult sport, but we should definitely play. It's my passion. I love it. But when I watch my videos, uh, it's really uh, it's really sad to watch. So this I wanted to clarify. Yes. Uh, so my favorite, recent favorite tennis player is Yannick Sinner, the Italian player. I love his technique, how smooth he is. I don't know if he's got a chance to win the tournament, but uh, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Okay, we'll be watching him. Okay, Peter, thank you for joining today. Thanks, Oscar. That was great fun. Take care.